If you would uh, turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. So on our last Lord's Day, we began a study looking at what the Bible teaches about the uh, the biblical uh, model of deacons. And uh, as a church, we decided, or as elders, we decided at the beginning of uh, the, the end of last year for this year that we would look at two main themes for 2018, um, and one of those themes was deacons. Um, you know, both of, uh, both, I guess you could say all of us as a church have our opinions about deacons formed by one of two things. Our, our opinion about deacons are, for, are formed, one, by God's word, uh, where we have studied and understood what the Bible teaches, not only just about deacons, but about church polity and church leadership and organization as a whole. And the Word of God has formed and has molded our uh, understanding of that. Or our interpretation of deacons has come from our experiences, what we've experienced. Some of our experiences have been difficult when it comes to deacons. Um, I'll be honest that as a young pastor, um, I had never really spent much time uh, studying what the deacon ministry was um, as a youth pastor and missions pastor at a previous church. I just went based on what the model of that was before me, and I trusted the church was modeling uh, it in an appropriate way, and through difficult experiences, uh, in that uh, realm, I began to really search out what does the Bible teach about deacons. Um, I saw deacons used in that church in a very demonic and very unbiblical light. And so I confess to you this morning as, as a young pastor who has still much to learn that I have actually never seen biblical deacons modeled in the way the New Testament, I think, teaches um, that comes with a lack of a longevity in ministry. And, and yet my desire as a pastor is to lead our church just as we have led our church in biblical eldership. Our desire is to lead our church in what does the Bible say about deacons and how might we be the first model for a lot of us in what the the a biblical deacon it looks like. So, if many of you this morning uh, maybe agree with me and have been on a similar journey, then we're going to look to the pages of scriptures this morning and ask ourselves, what does the Bible teach about the deacon ministry or the deaconate? Um, the the deacon office has been utilized in a church as servant leadership to the body of Christ under the leadership of the elders, by meeting the needs of the people. Uh, This servant leadership provides the elders an opportunity to focus on shepherding the flock, teaching and preaching and praying and leading, so that others may rise up underneath the elders in order to meet the needs of the people, meet the 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 needs of comfort, meet the needs of daily uh, physical needs. However, 
uh, issues might arise in the church. Uh, one journal, a uh, biblical journal, calls deacons shock absorbers because they are the ones that absorb a lot of the shock and the, the things that uh, may rise up in the church. And to do so, they allow the elders to focus on um, leading and directing the church body. We saw that last week in Acts chapter 6 uh, as we talked about um, how that passage was a, a, a general, general uh, springboard or launching pad uh, showing us a necessity for why we need deacons. Because problems arise in the church and leaders step forward and serve the needs of the people so that the elders um, and the pastors can focus their attention on the reading of scripture, the praying, uh, the direction of the church, um, and so forth. And so we saw an example of that in Acts chapter 6 as the conflict arose between widows in the Jerusalem church and how they, uh, these seven men who some, we talked about Wednesday night could be called like pre-deacons. They were, they were men set apart for a certain task um, that I think show us how the early church rose up to create and form the deacon ministry because there needed to be people in place that were servant leaders um, meeting needs of the people. And so today we turn our attention to the letter uh, that Paul wrote to his son in the faith, Timothy, um, and we'll be in chapter 3. Now before we do, we want to get to the context of this book. Um, Paul, as I said, writes to Timothy. Timothy is a young pastor like myself. Uh, Paul has uh, nurtured and discipled and cared for Timothy as a young disciple of his. Um, he uh, traveled, uh, Timothy traveled along with Paul on his first missionary journey. And eventually, Paul leaves Timothy in Ephesus uh, to lead and guide and direct that church. And so it's here that Paul writes this letter. Uh, to Timothy, helping him establish and understand uh, what the church or how the church should be organized. And that's one of the greatest blessings of First and Second Timothy and the book of Titus, which are called the pastoral epistles, because they are pastoral. They help us understand, uh, particularly me as a young pastor, how might we direct the affairs and organize the fair affairs and the, uh, the direction of the church body. So in other words, this is Christ's church. It's uh, a church that seeks to be holy, seeks to be biblical. And so we want to go to God's word and say, what does 1 Timothy chapter 3 teach us about biblical leadership as a whole? Now, if you'll look in 1 Timothy chapter uh, 1 with me, you'll see as Paul writes these words to Timothy, he is writing for a specific purpose. In verses 6 and 7, we read this, he says to Timothy, certain persons by swerving from these, which means uh, the, the, the idea of a, a true faith and sincere faith, they are swerving from these things. They've wandered into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So in other words, Paul is writing to Timothy ultimately to stamp out 
false teachers in the church and in, in, in doing so, encouraging him to fight the good fight of faith. That's what he says in verse 18 of chapter 1. I charge and entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. And he goes on to list them. So Paul is addressing this need. What, what a better way to deal with the way a church should be structured than to write it on the tail end of some disruptions and false teaching in the church of Ephesus. And so in chapter 2, Paul goes into how should a church be organized? How should the people of the church uh, conduct themselves, and so on and so forth. And so at the very beginning, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, Paul uh, is giving uh, the foundation of uh, our worship, who is Jesus Christ, that he is, um, he provides the opportunity so that all might be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, that he is the foundation of the church, and Paul just reminds Timothy that he is the preacher uh, and an apostle uh, to the Gentiles in faith and truth. And then in verse eight, which is important and, and focus an important focus for our study, he begins to deal with the church. And in verses eight down to verse fifteen of chapter two, he generally deals with how should men operate in the church. Generally, how should women operate in the church? Now, ladies, don't take this the wrong way, but in verse 8, he deals with the men that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. And then verses 9 through 15, the rest is about women. Now, that is not to say that women were the problem. That's just to say that in this particular scenario, he is dealing with uh, particularly how women should live and, and conduct themselves in the church. So you'll read in verse 8, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. And then verse 9, it says, likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, so on and so forth. He goes into a way the woman conducts herself, the way she dresses, the way she's submissive to those that exercise authority over her as teachers and, and preachers and leaders. In verse 14, he gives a, a basis for that because he goes back to the Genesis account that Adam was um, formed first and then Eve. And so he is reminding Timothy of the conduct by which men and women should operate in the church. And then we turn to chapter 3, the focus of our study today. If he is starting out broad, starting with Christ, narrowing it down to those who make up the church, both men and women who submit to Christ, then he's narrowing it down even more to say, let's look at the people who lead the church. And of course, he starts in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7 with overseers. Last year, we studied about what shepherds do, and, and verses 1 through 7 of chapter 3 are merely qualifications of elders. 
If you permit me this morning, I want to read these verses because they are connected in every way to our study in verses 8 through 13. Let me read this. I'll read down to verse 13, starting in verse 1. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone desires the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, not sober-minded, or or, excuse me, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So today in our passage, we want to look at these deacons, these servant leaders. And as we look at these, we want to look at three uh, aspects in this passage. We want to look at the office uh, of the deacon. What, what does it mean to serve in this official title? We want to look at the qualities of these deacons. And lastly, we want to look at the reward. So the office, the qualities, and the reward. One of the first things you'll notice uh, about this passage is the structure of this passage. It is no accident that chapter 3 starts with overseers. That is very purposeful in Paul's writing. He is writing that, starting with that first, because God has ordained elders to uh, lead in authority over the church. They are under shepherds of the great shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. They are likewise also servants, just as deacons are servants, just as you are called to be servants. And yet without a, uh, because God does not design his church to be chaotic, he designs it to be organized. And so he has likewise organized this passage for us to see that overseers first lead. But what you'll notice about the comparison between the qualifications of overseers or elders and the qualifications of deacons is that they are very similar in a lot of ways. Because God has a high standard for leadership in the church, high spiritual qualities, high spiritual characteristics as they carry out their responsibilities. What you'll not see in this passage 
is what deacons do, you will see who deacons are. And one interesting comparison in these lists is is that while elders are called to be able to teach and to take care of God's church, those items are left off the list of deacons. Deacons are not called to be able to teach. Although deacons can teach, that is not their responsibility in the church body, nor is their responsibility to lead in authority and take charge over God's church. They are and always have been designed as servant leaders. Now, as I've said, many of us have seen deacons doing the very opposite. They've been known to meet together as boards of directors where the pastor might be the CEO, but they are the ones calling the shots. But you will not see in the past or, or excuse me, you will not see in the present or the future of Redemption Community Church a deaconate body by which they serve in leadership and authority over you. They will always be servant leaders. While they will lead, they will always lead under the guidance and the direction of the elders. They are here to serve. They are here to administrate the day-to-day tasks of the operation of the church from cleaning to child care, from setup to security. These are just some of the areas of ministry where deacons function in their biblical identity. The very word diakonos in the Greek is used 30 or more times in the New Testament, and only in this passage is it translated deacons. Everywhere else, it is translated rather service or ministry. Even in Acts chapter 6 last week, we looked at variations of the root word by which the apostle said, we will devote ourselves to the preaching of God's word and to prayer, not to serve tables. And the word serve there is the word diakonia. And so the very meaning of diakonos, which is where we get the word deacons, is the idea of serving tables or serving. In his book, Finding Faithful Elders and Deacons, Thabiti Anyabwili states that the local church has its versions of what he calls waiters in a restaurant. He says the local church, too, has table servers. We call them deacons. The joy and peace and unity and fruitfulness of the local church depends in part on having a cadre of faithful table servants who are present when needed, eager to serve without being intrusive. And so our desire as elders is to have the office of deacons here in our church because we believe that it is needed so that the leadership can focus on direction and vision and study and prayer and shepherding you and our church body. So the big question, the big debate over the years is this, who can be deacons? Well, we can start off off the bat and say our best interpretation of the scriptures is not everyone can be deacons. 
And you might see that in some churches. Oh, this is deacon so-and-so, and this is deacon so-and-so, and this is deacon. And it's just everybody in the church is a deacon. And the reason they translate it that way is because we would say that everyone's a servant. So if everyone's a servant, then everyone's a deacon. But that isn't an office of the deacon. That's just a, a congregation of deacons. Now, we believe that there is a, uh, a calling upon God to draw people or rise people up out of a local congregation by which they can serve as deacons. That they can serve the body with the gifts and the abilities that God has given them. And in doing so, they can lead the other servants of the church in the congregation to do the same. They are essentially leaders of, over the, 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 the body and yet under the authority of elders. So who can be deacons? Well, let's look at this passage and determine that. In verses 8 through 10, we're not really told that these are men or women. Deacons, it says, likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Let them be tested first and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. If you're reading from the ESV or maybe the NIV or the New King James, verse 11 says to you in your translation, their wives. So immediately you think, okay, these are men. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Verse 12, let deacons each be the husband of one wife. Okay, there is our clear indication that deacons are men, that they must manage their children and their household well. Further indication of the leadership that God has given men over their households. For those who serve, as, serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So we would say then that deacons in this passage are clearly men. And we'll be, I'll be honest with you this morning. If verse 11 was not in this passage, we could move on. But verse 11 brings quite a difficulty and quite a bit of historical debate in the church. Verse 11, their, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. That seems pretty clear, except for the fact that, first of all, the word, the pronoun there is not there. It's not in the text. It literally reads in the New Testament Greek, Likewise, women, the Greek word is gune and can be translated, to be fair, wife or woman. So it rather reads, likewise, wife or wives or likewise, women must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. And so the difficulty and the debate in this passage is clearly between two interpretations. That not only can men be deacons, but we have to deal with verse 11. What does 11 teach us? Well, the two interpretations are this. Number one, 
that these are wives of deacons, believed by many, the wife of deacons who qualify according to the scripture, play a role in assisting deacons in their office. They're not office holders, but merely assistants to their husbands who are deacons. That's why your translation might read their wives, because the translators have added the word there to point you to their interpretation that this is the wives of deacons. And that's not uncommon in the scripture. Oftentimes, you will see verbs and other things added. Matter of fact, if you look in verse 8, it says, Deacons likewise must be dignified. The verb must be is not in the Greek text there. The reason why is because it is given to us in verse or chapter 3, verses 2. Therefore, an overseer must be, and the list and the qualifications are given. In verse 8, it says, deacons likewise must be is not there because it's being carried on as a flow of thought from verse 2. Just as overseers must be these qualifications, so deacons likewise must be these qualifications. So if we interpret this as wives of deacons, of course, this would eliminate single women from serving in this capacity. But there are some good arguments that you need to know in support of this view. Number one, it, would, it seems somewhat abrupt for Paul to interject this verse in verse 11 into the larger context if this is translated any other way besides wives as helpers. In other words, we could say, why would Paul, in the midst of describing male deacons, interject verse 11 unless verse 11 is kind of like an appendage, kind of an appendix to the overall deacon ministry, which is deacons, you serve and you do all these things and you meet all these qualifications. And by the way, your wives who serve with you need to fit, fit, uh, fit these qualifications in their respective assistant helping roles. So that would be one positive argument for wives of deacons. Number two, the word gune uh, fairly uh, can be translated woman or wife. And in this text, it's plural. In chapter three, verse two, when it says that uh, uh, the overseer must be the husband of one wife, it is actually translated one woman man or one wife uh, husband. Again, that's uh, used in verses 12. Either one of those are fair translations because throughout the New Testament, gune can mean wife or it can mean woman. You have to read the overall context. Paul has talked about the context of marriage as the overseer is uh, managing his marriage well, leading in his marriage well, being faithful morally in his marriage. And so it would make sense and, and wouldn't seem too out of place in verse 11 for him to bring up the marriage of deacons, that they would be the husband of one wife, but in verse 11, that their wives might be dignified, not slander, sober-minded, and faithful. 
And lastly, a good argument for wives of deacons is simply the question, what about Paul's earlier prohibition where women are not allowed to exercise authority over a man? He says that in chapter 2, verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she shall remain quiet. So if we translate this, anything other than wives of deacons, isn't that her demonstrating authority over a man as an official um, servant of, or leader of the church. So those are just some of the positive interpretations uh, for that argument of wives of deacons. The second argument is deaconesses or women deacons. Again, this has also been practiced throughout church history. Women deacons or deaconesses are servant leaders still remaining under the authority of elders so as not to exercise any authority over a man and yet designated as servant leaders over the certain daily affairs affairs in the church. Brother David's going to speak to us next week on this final sermon of this series and he's going to give us history throughout the church about these ideas. Of course, if this is translated women deacons or deaconesses, this would allow both single and married women to serve if they are qualified. And here are some reasons why people follow and believe this to be women deacons. Number one, the structure of this passage. Again, as I said Earlier, verse 2 mentions overseers must be and gives a list. And the flow of thought continues in verse 8. Deacons likewise must be dignified, so on and so forth. That likewise there connects us to verse 2. It it borrows the verb from verse 2. And the most interesting is verse 11 does the same thing. Verse 11 borrows the verb must be with the word likewise as if Paul is making a third category or a a companion category to deacons. So if you squished all this together, it would basically say the overseer must be, the deacons must be, and the women must be. And it's connected grammatically from the word likewise. Number two, as I said in my introduction about deaconesses, since they are merely servants, this would not be attacking a complementarian view of the scriptures since male elders continue their leadership and the authority in the church. Women deacons who might sit on deacon boards making decisions for the overall direction of the church would not only be acting in an unbiblical way, they would be exercising authority over men, which is unbiblical, and they would be exercising authority over anyone in the church as deacons, which deacons don't do. So if you have a 
understanding that deaconesses exercise authority and rule as if they are elders, maybe you've seen that in the past, that is an unbiblical view of deaconesses. If you look at the qualifications of deaconesses, it's shorter than the male counterpart and yet parallel in its descriptions. It says deacons must be dignified. Verse 11, wives must be or women must be dignified. It talks about uh, deacons must not be double-tongued while women must not be slanderers. Deacons must not be addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. While women must be um, sober-minded, which would be controlled in their minds, self-controlled by the Spirit. While deacons must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, verse 9, women must be faithful in all things. Obviously, they're not identical in their parallel, and yet they do have clear similarities. But then verse 12 really throws off this interpretation because it says, well, deacons must be the husband of one wife, managing their households well. So if women were allowed to be deacons, then surely it would say that they must also be the wife of one husband, right? Well, interestingly, Paul doesn't have to say this because he has already dealt with women and their marriages in chapter 2 in their role as all women in the church. In the way that they live their lives and they, uh, they seek to, to serve their families. Author Greg Allison comments that in chapter 2, he assumes women, or he assures women that they can uh, avoid being deceived by the evil one and thus not repeat the transgression of Eve by carrying out their God-ordained domestic roles. As these are instructions for all women in the church, generally speaking, they are certainly instructions for women deacons as a subset of the larger group. Thus, Paul does not need to discuss this qualification for deaconesses again in chapter 3, verse 11, as he's already covered it generally with all women in the church. You might also say that immorality in marriage normally was a, a, a deception and a sin that men fell into, and so it would mean it would make most natural sense for deacons to be uh, to be encouraged and reminded of that. Plus, in chapter 2, Paul does not deal with that as far as husbands or men in general as he does women. And so we come to the final, I guess, statement about this, and that is this. Verse 11 exists, and we have to deal with it. And as I'm, as I'm wrestling through this, as the elders, if we as, have wrestled through this, we, have, we ask ourselves, what is the best interpretation of these passages? 
And so we come to, after spending a great deal of time and study and prayer over the past few months, we've drawn the conclusion and agree that by moving forward, the best interpretation of these verses for the relationship of the candidacy of the office of deacon is both open to men and women. And to serve the church under the leadership and the authority of the elders who are under the headship of Christ. And we make this decision like all other decisions, carefully studying God's word, taking what God has given us and trying to make the best interpretation according to what he's told us. But let me give you a disclaimer. We recognize that this goes against the cultural norm of most Southern churches today. The idea of a woman serving appears to be liberalism. But we are not taking what God's word says and say, you know, the times have changed and we need to be more open-minded. We're not taking the command of overseers that state that it, uh, an overseer must be the husband of one wife and say, we need to just kind of soften that a little bit because we want to give uh, women an opportunity to serve in that day. We're not doing that. What we are doing is we're wrestling with verse 11 and, and trying to be honest with the scriptures and the best interpretation that's been given to us. And we want to assure you that we are not, as elders, lords over this congregation. We are a congregational church. And so in this disclaimer, you have to understand that God has given you an opportunity to have a voice in this process. While we as the elders may welcome both deacons and deaconesses to serve alongside one another, we also acknowledge that if women are never nominated to this office, then Redemption Community Church will still be living to the biblical standards of, of what God has given us for the church. We're just merely presenting our best attempt at biblical interpretation and exposition of this issue. And so we hope and pray that whatever your interpretation of this passage is, whether you agree or disagree, that as the body of Christ, we would not allow division and disunity to lead this charge. Instead, let's remember that God brings the church together, just like the Hellenists and the Hebrews, in spite of our differences, and unites us as one. So those are the ideas behind the office of deacons. As I move forward and I mention uh, deacons and deaconesses, I want to look at the qualities. If you remember in the, in the scriptures, the Bible teaches us that God does not look upon the external frame of a man, that he looks in, inwardly to the person's heart. And the news and the media today has made it clear that there is a big problem in the church today of character qualities for its leadership. We have seen throughout the last year particularly, but even beyond that, we have seen more uh, instances of moral failure than I can ever remember in the church where leadership has fallen 
particularly in the Me Too movement and things of that nature. And so while that reveals to us that all leaders are, are susceptible to sin and struggle with temptation, it also brings to great light and necessity the need for accountability for leadership. And so these qualities really break down that are given to us in verses 8 through 13. Items of personal holiness and relational holiness. Paul kind of starts it off by saying deacons must be dignified. That means they must be worthy of respect from others. It's not deserving of respect from a worldly perspective because of some physical accolades that they've accomplished. You know, if an NBA player uh, today scores uh, a triple-double, if you don't know what that is, it's a, a, a accumulation of double-digit numbers in five different statistics. If, but if it's a great accomplishment, and if, if an NBA player did it, the world would pat them on the back and give them great respect because of the amount of times that they've scored a triple-double in a, in a game or in the season. But in the church, it's not based, our leadership and, and, and uh, the qualities of our leaders is not based on what we've accomplished. As elders, it's not based on how many books we've written or journal entries we've had published. But it's about the inner qualities, the spiritual qualities that you hold us accountable to. That we are held accountable to God and it is no different for the deacon and the deaconess. Being dignified means that they have garnered the respect of other people because they have demonstrated a spiritual fruit in their lives which the church can benefit from and be blessed by as deacons. And so I look at the word dignified there in verses 8 and in verses 11 in describing the deaconess as merely the overarching heading of these qualifications that flow below it. Just as Paul calls the overseer someone who must be above reproach, everything underneath that in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, describe what it means to be above reproach. So what does it mean to, to garner worthy respect from other people? Well, it would be people that are qualified in such a way that they control their speech. For deacons, that's being um, not, they're not double-tongued. Maybe they're saying one thing over here to one person, saying another thing to uh, someone over here to, as another. You can imagine that not being double-tongued was very helpful throughout the history of the church as disunity bring, comes forward. Alexander Strock states in his book regarding deacons that when people are under pressure, it may be tempting to reveal less than the full truth or to conceal the truth when speaking to certain people or to think that little white lies are acceptable. And when there's a disagreement or conflict, some people may try to please both parties by saying one thing to the elders and another thing to the people being helpful. But if deacons are the support for the church, if they are the ones uh, sh uh, absorbing the shock for the elders, if they are trying to serve the needs of the people, 
then they by all means must be people who can control their speech. Similarly, deaconesses are not are called not to be slanderers. This is the same word, diabolos, which we uh, interpret uh, for the, the, the activity of the devil himself. Speaking untruth and evil against other people. So we're reminded of Psalm 141, verse 3. As David prays, set a guard, guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the doors of my lips. Deacons and deaconesses have to be people who in exhibiting personal holiness, self-control, they can not just speak or not just avoid speaking negatively, but they can speak positively. That they are people who can control their mouths in such a way that bursting forth from the joy and the love of Jesus Christ himself, they are encouragers. Their natural born qualities of leadership give them the desire and the vision to see people flourish. So they are encouragers. They are people who share hope with a hurting church. Instead of speaking like the devil, they speak like Christ himself. Secondly, not only do they control their speech, they control their pleasures. For deacons, it's stated not to be addicted to much wine. It doesn't say not addicted to wine. It doesn't say uh, not drinking wine. It says not addicted to much wine. Contextually, you would have to understand that the way by which they used wine in Jesus' day and in Paul's day, they would dilute it to such a, 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 an ineffective state that they would have to drink much wine to be drunk and to face addiction of it. Otherwise, it was just a, a, a refreshing drink with very little um, alcoholic content, content in it because of of its diluted nature. And yet, because it's a warning, we know that the temptation is always there to overindulge and to say that deacons should not overindulge in alcohol is only the the cusp, it's only the tip of the iceberg when we think about what leaders in the church should do. It would be silly to assume that as long as deacons stayed away from overindulging in alcohol and yet they weighed five or six hundred pounds because they overindulge in food, that would be hypocritical. Instead, the, the idea here is that deacons and all leaders, including overseers, should be people of self-control. That we should be disciplined in our physical lives and our spiritual lives. That we have control of our pleasures, our desires. Of course, that continues on where he says that we should be, um, deacons should be men who um, are not in love with money or greedy for dishonest gain. That's a unique word in the New Testament. And it's, it is a, a, a striving for dishonesty because of greed when it comes to money. 
I think the greatest example of this would have been Judas. From the beginning, you can see if you follow the life of Judas as he walks with Jesus, you can see that Judas's desires in his life, which culminate to him betraying Christ and eventually killing himself, it's because of his lust for money. In one point in the New Testament, it even says, uh, it, it even records in John that Judas was known to take out of the money bag by which the disciples carried and keep back for himself. And in so many contexts of Christian ministry and leadership, you have an opportunity for leaders to be alone with the financial gifts to the church. And by means of difficulties in their own personal life, they feel the temptation uh, because no one is looking or whatever that might be to take from the church's money, God's money. And because of that, they are uh, ineffectively leading the church. They are stealing from what God has given and intended for that money. And the problem there is not their theft. The problem there begins with their very own lust for money, not trusting in the providence of God, not trusting in his gracious giving that he can provide for them even in the midst of difficulty. So again, to flip this on the positive, another quality is not only self-control over our pleasures, but a trust in God's giving and his generosity and to be content. And so Paul brings that up in 1 Timothy chapter 6, that godliness with contentment is great gain. For we were brought, we brought nothing into the world. We can take nothing, we cannot take anything out of the world. If we have food and clothing with these things, we will be content. That's a message for the whole church. And yet very fitting for leaders in the church like deacons and deaconesses. And likewise, if a deaconess is sober-minded, sober meaning not being controlled by outside influences, then she likewise will not allow money or greed or vanity or things uh, in, in, to creep into her life and rule her life when the Spirit is supposed to be ruling her life. So they control, they have control over their speech, they have control over their pleasures, they have control over their faith. Lastly, it says that in this personal holiness that the deacons and deaconesses must be faithful. Spelled out a little bit clearly in verses 9, they must hold the mystery of their faith with a clear conscience. The mystery of the faith is the revealed will of, of God throughout the ages, the, the redemptive plan of God, which is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And thus, by putting their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as the sinless Son of God who came to save people from their sin, by trusting and putting their faith in that Jesus, finding their identity in him, holding tightly, grabbing tightly to that faith, not losing faith or being men or women of doubt. They hold tightly to the faith. It, it, it is their Christian faith. It is valuable to them. It is personal to them. And they do so with a clear conscience. 
meaning that there is, their, their consciences are not offended. God has given us our conscience in conjunction with the Holy Spirit and his word that, that is our alarm system. And in that alarm system, we are warned as the word of God teaches us and instructs us and we hide it into our lives or, 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 or allow it to feed us. We are, uh, we are alarmed when we sin against God's word. And that is our conscience going off. And the sad thing is, is that the more we ignore our conscience, the less we're aware of it. And so a clear conscience is an obedient conscience. I think of ignoring our conscience like a mother ignores her loud children. Over time, they can operate as if their children are not there screaming on the floor, throwing Cheerios across the room. But we can. Our consciences alarm us. And if these men and women are men that are faithful and holding to the mystery of the faith, then with a clear conscience, they are obedient to what God has commanded them. They are living lives of repentance and holiness, striving to turn from sin and living as people who belong to Christ. But secondly, the qualities are relational. For deacons, they are the husband of one wife. The statement here, again, can be translated the uh, one woman man or one wife um, for a husband. I think in the context of what Paul is stating here, the, the clearest um, uh, interpretation of a one woman man is not speaking of necessarily polygamy or not speaking of divorce, but it is speaking about moral purity. This is a hard interpretation for me because I grew up being taught that this verse eliminated deacons who were divorced from serving in the church. And personally, I looked at my father as someone who did not deserve to be divorced because it was my mother who chose to leave him. And how is it that this situation disqualified a faithful man of the church and a faithful man that met these requirements? How was it that this disqualified him? And so my flesh and my, my feelings want to interpret this a different way. But I have to go to the text and say, is that what Paul means? And I think the, the clearest interpretation does fit with a emphasis on moral uh, purity in the marriage. A one woman man is a man who is devoted both mentally, spiritually, and physically to one woman. Just as elders must be one woman men, so deacons must be faithful in their marriage, morally pure. And this is relational holiness. This is how we relate to other people. And so just as the marriage must be faithful, these deacons must be, as the Bible says, blameless before all. 
or as the uh, as it says in the qualifications for elders, they must be above reproach. Meaning that they must not um, have uh, hidden accusations against them. They must be people without blame by which they cannot be, or that they might be disqualified. They must be people who um, do not have unresolved conflicts. That they are blameless. And as they are blameless... They are leading their families well. Particularly for men, they are leading their family. They are making sure that their family affairs are in order. There's a great necessity of the church leader today to take care of his home before he can lead in the church. Paul even says that about the overseer. How can he manage his own household well with all dignity keeping his uh, children submissive? How can he manage his household well? How, or if he doesn't, how can he care for God's church? Well, the text does not mention that phrase of caring for God's church for deacons, but you could easily say, if a deacon cannot lead and serve his family well, how can he lead and serve the church? And so it is a emphasis on the deacon to lead in a way that brings honor and glory to what God has gifted him at his home, in his finances, of being a good steward. So those are the qualities. And lastly, there is the reward and will be done. Verse 13 clearly states the reward for those who serve well as deacons, gain a good standing for themselves, and also uh, great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. The first reward comes at the tail end of being tested first, as you see in verse 10. It says, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. There's a necessity for examination. That's why these qualities are given to us. They are not just to fill the pages of Scripture. They are calling us to lead the church in such a way so that the church holds its leadership accountable to these things. I submit myself as an overseer. Deacons and deaconesses submit themselves in their roles in leadership because we desire a pure, holy church that honors Christ. And if we are not modeling the way that we should, then we should not be serving. And so the reward is that the men and women who are tested and affirmed, brought by the people, nominated by the people, approved by the elders, they will literally be affirmed after testing before the church. And in that testing and, 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 and physical affirmation, 
The Bible says that they gain a good standing for themselves. What that means is that they are um, recognized by the church to serve in the way that God intended them to serve. Think of it this way. When your child, when you notice or or discover this great uh, talent that your child has, this great gift that your child might have, you want to... um, cultivate that gift and cultivate that talent. And, and as you um, cultivate that, you, you, you test them. Maybe it's piano lessons or, or, or uh, athletic ability or scholastic ability. And, and through those examinations, the, their, uh, their gifts and their talents are expounded and they grow. And what do you do? They're, they're recognized. And that recognition is not sinful We want to make sure that it doesn't lead to pride, but the recognition is an encouragement to them. I think maybe as Americans, we go overboard with the recognition since you graduate from something every year in in public school. But the recognition by itself is an encouragement. It is a motivation to continue because you have been examined and tested and you see the fruit of your labor and you move forward to complete the next goal or task. Well, a good standing is when deacons are, and deaconesses are affirmed and tested and then they are, they are literally recognized by the church to say, God has, has gifted you to do this. This is your place in our body. And so we recognize you not so that you can be puffed up with conceit, but so you can be recognized as this is God's gift to serve our body. This is why he sent you. This is your purpose at Redemption Community Church. The reward then is, is that you are encouraged by that standing. Listen, my greatest desire is, as a church is to see a healthy deaconate ministry rise up so that we can see uh, what that looks like in a, in a body. And there will be bumps and there will be bruises and there will be obstacles along the way. But man, I'm, I'm excited to see it for once in my life. To see people serving the way that God intended them to serve the church. So you're tested, you're examined, people are looking into your lives as viable candidates. The elders approve you, they they recognize you, and you're encouraged. You're not only publicly encouraged, but you're spiritually encouraged. It says you have great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. That confidence is comes from the fact that Christ has saved you, he has redeemed you, and you may have been like this low-life scumbag before Christ, and now he's, he's brought you up, he's saved you, he's uh, ripped you from the, the darkness of sin and given you the grace of, of his love and his mercy and his forgiveness, and he's raised you up, not as a perfect person, as an imperfect servant that he now wants you to serve in leadership in your church. And all you can do is be encouraged by that. Me? That's what I say to myself. God, do you want me to stand and, and try to interpret your holy word and, and, and use the, the skills that you've given? You want me to do that? 
But that's how the the grace of God and the glory of Christ reflects back upon him because he takes weak vessels and he uses them for his glory. And so to think that God might call you to such a, a leadership role in your local body is very humbling, it's very encouraging, and it is a confidence that God is sanctifying you and growing you and using you in your Christian faith. And so as we conclude, as we reflect upon these qualifications, let me ask you clearly, is serving in this way something that you desire? Is it something that God might be calling you to do? Could you be the pioneer of Redemption Community Church for the ministry of deacon and deaconesses? And I use the word pioneer because you will be setting those initial steps forward in our local body of what that ministry might look like. And I pray that if God calls you and gives you that desire and you are tested and affirmed, then praise God that he would use you in that way. Because he is the one that receives the glory and the honor. Let's pray.